Hello, and welcome to Tabletop Game Talk on Topic, a show where we talk about tabletop gaming topics. I'm one of your hosts, Fletcher. I'm Kitty. And I'm Chris. Today we are going back in time to talk about some gaming milestones. We'll mostly talk about notable games that have set the bar for everything that came after them. We'll also talk about some events, companies, and personalities that have also helped push the hobby forward. But first, as always, a thank you to our Patreon friends of the show, Adam Harrison, and the Gift of Games in Grays Lake, Illinois. And a huge thank you to all of our other patrons as well. All right. I should remind everyone we're on Zoom, so you can join us. Um, actually, we're on Zoom, and you can join us. And if you want to join us live for our episode 200, this is going to not be our normal Monday night. We're going to do Thursday night. So it's Thursday... I'm going to do math in my head. 17, 18, the 18th. As you count with See, your fingers. My head. <laughs> Out loud and with my fingers. Correct. Um, so join us Thursday, the 18th at 830. If you'd like to be around for our episode 200, uh, which we will be talking about our top 10 desert island games. I... All right. So I came up with a new name for this episode, Chris. I'm telling you okay. live on the air. Um, I think instead of Desert Island, they should be Mars games because it makes way more sense. These are the games you can bring to Mars with you because you'll have people to play them with you. You just can't get new games. All right. Yeah, because Desert Island didn't make any sense. It didn't make as much sense as a Desert Island game. <laughs> I know Fletcher was like, mm, I was like, what are the stipulations? <laughs> and you're like, well, you're on a Desert Island. I'm like, okay, are there other people? And you're like, yes. Okay. Right, so here's it's not the a deserted problem. Desert Island. If I say top 10 Mars games, people are going to expect a top 10 games about Mars. How about you just top 10 games? <laughs> no, because it's different. <laughs> In what way is it different? Because the top, your top 10 games may not be the top 10 games that you want to play for all times. Because, okay, I mean, Pandemic Legacy you is just probably solved it. In top my 10 top 10 games you want to play for all time. <laughs> That's a long title. <laughs> Adrian says top 10 games to bring to an island resort. Ooh, that one's not bad. But that bad. doesn't have the longevity of oh, a yeah. deserted but island that, that or also gets into a like Mars colonization. Travel games. Like, oh, if I'm traveling with this game, do <laughs> yeah. I want to bring Big Boggle? <laughs> Terrence, bringing Pyramid Arcade is not cheating. <laughs> um, We can call it you know, desert island games on the podcast feed, but I'm referring to it in my head canon as our Mars games. I'm what referring about... to it as top 10 games you want to play for all time. <laughs> <laughs> top. That's a lot of words. I'll see what, if I can acronym that into some like fancy acronym. It's a lot of words. Put a bunch but, of periods. If, but it no one's going to want to listen to this episode after we title it. <laughs> top 10 games you want to play for all time. Okay, that's not big. It's T-T-G-Y-W-T-P-F-A-T. <laughs> so that's Tigawada did a fat. That's what I'm titling the episode. Tigawada fit a fat. I, I'm I'm gonna do that because if you see an episode title of Tiki Waka Pick a Fat, you are going to want to listen to that episode. Like it just are, makes sense. Are you? <laughs> I don't know. We'll find Tiki out. Fat. <laughs> I'm gonna put periods between each thing though, so you'll listen just to figure out what Tiki Wada Pick a Fat is. There's not enough vowels in that. No. Um. Yeah. So <laughs> I'm. I haven't actually put my list together yet, but I can. Uh, the problem with this list is there are games where I think I would want to bring on the island, but I've only played like 
you know, three or four times. And what if like the eighth <laughs> time in, I find that I get really, really bored of it. Then you that have would be nine terrible. other games. <laughs> All right, good point. <laughs> fair enough. All right, are enough. we ready to do this? No, no, we're not ready. We're only four and a half minutes in. We can't possibly be ready. Kitty, you just want to get off so you can go to sleep. Yes, I'm very pregnant. <laughs> <laughs> She's sleeping we were for two Sleep is a commodity. If we were doing a drinking games episode or a bingo card, I every time you mentioned being pregnant or tired, you would get you'd have to drink. It's really the same thing, and I'm not allowed to drink because I'm very pregnant. <laughs> you have to drink Martinelli's. <laughs> <laughs> so no. I have some um, San Pellegrino. It's um, orange and prickly pear. Because when I was buying groceries on Instacart, it doesn't actually tell you the translated name. It only gives you the like Italian name. So I had to guess what flavor is. And I was like, hmm, that looks fun. <laughs> that sounds delicious. It's Italian. Yeah. Um, so I have two questions and a comment. Well, one question, I guess. Um, Taz did ask <laughs> how many people are on the desert island. or And that would be enough to play whatever game you bring. Um, but my re- my question is, Kitty... How long after the new baby before the first glass of wine? Um, I mean, during delivery, I have already purchased. (laughs) 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 I'm smuggling the champagne into the hospital. No, Um, I'm not a person who abstains during breastfeeding. So, yeah, whenever I feel like it. All right. Our yeah, our hospital like our new parent dinner actually had champagne. My hospital was not that fancy last time around. Last time around, I I think we ordered out something we're not allowed to do this time. Um, we got Thai food. Oh, good. I would do Thai food. Yeah. We went yeah. on Grubhub. It was like 10 o'clock at night, though, I think, is the real reason. Although, <laughs> By the I would time do we Thai got food. Settled. Yeah. Sydney, if she has her choice, will do sushi. Not being able to have raw fish for nine months is killing her. I've been eating... The sushi that doesn't actually contain raw fish in it. So, like a California yeah. roll. No, she just quite a bit of it. It's fine. Like a California roll. You can get veggie rolls. There's a bunch no. of them that are like smoked fish or stuff like that. She will literally take a piece of salmon out of the freezer, defrost it, and then eat it. It's not smart. <laughs> uh, is that sushi grade salmon? <laughs> no, it's just a salmon <laughs> fillet. <laughs> And that's not a good idea. Yeah, well, actually, so the last time she did that, which was about a year and a half ago, and the reason it was a year and a half ago is because she actually did get food poisoning from it. So she's yeah, like, it's okay, not, fine. It's not sushi grade. <laughs> yeah. She's probably listening to this right now being like, Chris, no, don't tell everyone my secrets. <laughs> no, she's listening to it right now. She's like, yeah, but I'm still going to eat sushi as my first meal. Get this thing out sushi of me so I can eat raw salmon. Delicious. I also yeah. want raw salmon. Not <laughs> as much as I did people, the first time around, though. I would say the majority of people right now are listening, saying, I would not eat raw fish if you paid me. Um, and I was like that when I first moved to Chicago. But eventually I tried it and I'm like, yeah, some of this stuff is good. Some of it's vile, but some of it's really good. Some of it is vile. I still don't like shellfish. I don't like anything with the skin on it. If it's if it's shiny, I don't want to eat it. <laughs> what? Or if it's... Good to know. Yeah, or anything like if I can like identify it as an octopus, I don't want to eat it. Like no <laughs> suction cups on my food. That's a hard. So hard we right eat there. like calamari. No, 
hundred percent. No, I'll oh, eat the so rings, good. but not the ones with the tentacles. Not even the though tentacles. I know it's not identical. The tentacles. The, the tentacles are the best part because they have so much more breading to squid ratio. Ah, uh, no, I can't do so it. Good. It's a mental thing. I also, they also love eel, the which is sauce cooked. The best. So eel is cooked. You never eat raw eel, and it's candied. So it's like almost like a sugary glaze on it. But the hairs on it as well. So <laughs> the texture <laughs> of eating an eel is like like swallowing a cat tongue. <laughs> it tastes delicious, but you just don't want to do it. <laughs> All right. I think I've seriously taken us off topic enough where we can get on topic. <laughs> Chris, will you eat tacos? Language? All right. <laughs> what? What? Tacos. Cow tongue. Tacos. Language. No, I, I have had cow tongue before and I don't like that either. Oh, it's so good. <laughs> Uh, what's the weirdest meat you've eaten i mean cow tongue's up there it's not that weird <sighs> it's not it's that not. weird in certain cultures i actually went to it was a russian meet the baby party um and they had all kinds of like Wait, do these, russian and meet a baby um russians <laughs> saying come over and meet our baby like the country <laughs> oh yeah <laughs> and they had the a lot of meat you've ever yeah what is your craziest Fletcher? meat if you don't think cow tongue is weird the weirdest thing i've ever eaten oh man uh i mean I've had menudo. I've had I've had uh, like is. chicken hearts. Menudo is is like it's, it's like a a Mexican tripe soup. So it's like you know. What I tripe was gonna is? say I was really hoping somebody would have eaten tripe. <laughs> yeah, I've had tripe. I've had tripe tacos. I've had menudo, which is like tripe soup. I've had what's um, a tripe? Like chicken like intestines. Tripe is intestines. Oh uh, yeah, I'm gonna avoid that. Um, <laughs> although I also I like natural casing hot dogs, which is also intestine. So it's I guess not I intestine like that. Yeah, yeah, I know. <laughs> I'm just trying to, you know, be my Midwest. I'm a very adventurous eater. Chicken hearts, liver. I'm, I'm not as much like the gross food challenges, reality TV things. Like I can't watch that stuff. It's just gross. Taz asks if anyone's eaten haggis. I know I have not. I haven't. I have eaten haggis. Yes. Is it as bad as it sounds? I tried it. Uh, it's not great. It wasn't my favorite, but um, I had it in the U.S., so it's not traditional. Because I think in the U.S., you're not allowed to put lungs in it. So it was only all of the other organ meat. <laughs> so if anybody, this will be the last thing, but if anybody wants to see like gross food challenges, uh, you should look up like people eating sustroming, which is a type of fermented uh, herring that comes in a can. Um, and you can tell, like, people will just open it. They'll just open the can. The can is puffy, and then they'll, like, <laughs> gag and throw up. <laughs> it's native to... Um, the grossest one I've seen is the the shark. That It's like a fermented shark in Greenland or Iceland, one of those yeah, it, countries where they have those really that. gross sharks. Yeah, I think that's fermented pretty similar. Fermented meats. Miles says he ate fried tarantula in the chat. Now, I will say... I will try just about anything fried because it becomes <laughs> for something tentacles. new and delicious when you fry it. Wait, so you'll eat a fried tarantula <laughs> with tentacles. legs, but not fried squid with tentacles? No, not if it has the legs. No, 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 no. Because then it looks like an octopus. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Let's talk about uh, Monopoly. All right. Monopoly. So, all right. Before we get into this... Um, <laughs> so Jesse, who took over the Dice Tower news from us, he actually recommended this episode. And I thought that 199 or 200 would be great for milestones. But for 200, I wanted to do like a top something. So we're doing 199 milestones. Because 200 is a huge milestone. 
Um, and we're about to approach that. So the very end of this list is going to be episode 200 of Tabletop Game Talk. But that'll be foreshadowing. Hopefully we actually do episode 200. <laughs> <laughs> um, so this list is not meant to be in any way complete. Uh, you could argue a zillion different ways that there are more important games, companies, people, uh, if you wanted to. This is just really kind of a list that I came up with that I think sort of kind of skips through to today from, let's see, 1902 is the first event on here. And, and we could go back. I mean, I think chess is a pretty big milestone. Um, Moncala, I don't know when that was made, but listen to our, I guess, a classic ancient games Ancient games. Ancient games? It's ancient games. Yep. Um, there was a, I watched a thing on YouTube about an even more ancient game, like 4500 BC is where this game came from. Uh, it used D4s. Like, this game used D4s, which was amazing. I didn't know D4s existed back then. Uh, but we are starting in the 19th, or 20th century with 1902. <laughs> <laughs> Took you a confused. second there, huh? <laughs> I, I get confused with numbers. Actually, don't get confused with numbers. But I do get confused with dates. So, uh, and we're doing this it's in chronological order. Chris. I know. I know. Oh my! Like my my history classes. When I stopped having geography, history, and spelling classes in school, my grades increased to the point where I got an award for most improved student because I have no ability to memorize <laughs> dates, names, and spelling. I can't do that. I can understand concepts, but memorization just doesn't work. So that's why I wrote all this stuff down. Um, episode 60 is Ancient Games. I thought it was episode 60, and I was like, no, I can't be right. But I was. Nice. It is. That's a great episode. very accomplished. Yeah. It's still in one. the feed, by the way. So check it out. All right. So we're going to start with Monopoly. So Kitty, tell us about Monopoly. All right. So Monopoly was designed as the Landlord's Game by Elizabeth Maggie in 1902. Um, it was patented two years later, but it was not published by Parker Brothers until 1933 as Monopoly. Um, the interesting thing about the Landlord's Game is that there were two ways to play that one. There was like the more cooperative, friendly way, and then there was the mean way. And the mean way is the one that stuck with us as the rules for Monopoly as we know it, even though no one actually knows the right rules to Monopoly, or at least plays yeah. by them. So it um, there's a really good episode on, is it Planet Money? Uh, well, actually, Monopoly has been done in a number of, Planet Money and Ludology have both done episodes on Monopoly. So if you're interested in Monopoly, go listen to other podcasts talk about it, because there's so much information. You could do, like, three whole episodes on just Monopoly. Yeah. And honestly, we all hate on Monopoly now, and for good reason. That's it, totally fine. But I, there's a couple of notable things here. Number one, Monopoly was, like, a woman designer in, in 1902, which is notable by yeah. itself. But it literally set the tone for a hundred years plus of what board gaming is to the masses. Like if you talk about, Oh, I play board games. Most people are going to say, Oh, like monopoly. Yep. It is the board game that almost everyone knows, even though nobody knows it. (laughs) (laughs) Nobody knows the rules, but everyone knows what it is. Yeah. Like you say monopoly, everyone can visualize what the board looks like. You know, it is, 
there's so much like cultural literacy in that game. Like, do not pass go. Do not collect two hundred dollars. Go to uh, get out jail. of jail free cards. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. free parking. Yeah. So the next thing I have on the list here, we advance from 1933 to 1952, and that's Avalon Hill. So Avalon Hill is a company that started in 1952, and they published a game called Tactics, which for all, for from what I could tell, was invented the concept of a pre-printed map with pieces and rules all in one box. So now you have a scenario war game that all comes together. Now, Scenario or wargaming, like miniature wargaming, has existed for probably as long as war games have existed, as war has existed. Um, but this was the first time it was put together in one piece. And I grew up in late 70s, so 80s are pretty much when I remember my childhood. And Avalon Hills was the game company that had the games that were like cool. You have Parker Brothers, Milton Bradley, and then this weird offshoot of Avalon Hill. Um, and if I remember correctly, I think Axis and Allies was Avalon Hill at that point as well. Um, and still is, because now Axis and Allies and Zombies is published by the new Avalon Hill. Um, but I really think that this, this, they were ahead of their time. They were doing hobbyist games before hobbyist games were cool. So that's why I put them on the list. Fletcher, what did you put on the list via me? Via you. <laughs> I was going to say, we didn't put anything on the list. Nice trick. Uh, <laughs> what were we assigned by Chris? <laughs> Dungeons and Dragons, D&D. Um, so this is based on, uh, I, I was reading like the Wikipedia entry on this, actually. Tactical Studies Rules, Inc. Um, it was based on a subset of those, like, basically war miniatures game called Chainmail. Um, and it was invented in 1974 by Gary Gygax and Dave Arneson. Is that how you pronounce it? Arneson? <laughs> Arneson. Arneson. And you wrote Gary Gygax here. <laughs> um, autocorrect <laughs> um but yeah I, like this to me this is the game that got me into like, tabletop gaming because i had played lots of those old tabletop games before um risk chess Tr- stratego a bunch of other like a little bit more obscure ones but like playing this game with my friends in middle school uh, advanced dungeons and dragons second edition like this is definitely what got me into the hobby and got me hooked. I had no idea. Like, I had heard of Dungeons & Dragons, but I had really, like, no idea about it um, until my friends brought it to me, and I, I was done after that. Well, some interesting yeah. things is the original one stole liberally from Tolkien, stole liberally from um, H.P. <laughs> Lovecraft at the time where it wasn't public domain at that point, got cease and desist from both of those companies... And yet is it created a genre that we'll find you know, we'll see as we go through here that everyone started building off of. Like it created the fantasy gaming genre, not just in role playing, but in pretty much everything. Um also, uh, because we have a live audience, uh Michael wants to mention 3M Company, which made Acquire and other games around the same time as well. And Michael's 3M as in the the office supply makers is yeah i've played a different i've played regatta i think we've talked about it before yeah we did talk about regatta before i have that game i want 3m to come back and make like post-it note versions of games i'm just saying there's rolling right all over that um (laughs) (laughs) let's see all right so my next one on here this one i put on here because i remember again another game or another game company i remember from the 80s and that's steve jackson games so they were founded in 1980 
and they still exist today. Um, everyone knows them today as like the Munchkin company, uh, because about, I don't know, a decade and a half ago, they came up with a game called Munchkin, which just kind of took off. It's a very super casual take that kind of game that can run for literally forever. Um, and it has every IP ever in existence, Munchkin. Yeah. <laughs> They've done a great job marketing that IP in that game. Uh, but at the time, they published micro games and mini games and small games. Like a lot of their games sold in a four by seven inch Ziploc bag, everything in there. And then they had like these little clamshell boxes that you could buy things from. And I remember Car Wars came in one of those. Ogre came in one of those. Um, and then oh, there was a green alien game, which someone screaming um, is it, it was in a green box. And you run around a spaceship and you pick up items and you have to fight off. Things like these games. If you had a Steve Jackson game, you were playing at another level. You weren't playing Monopoly. You were playing something that was crunchy. And I remember just loving these games. Um, a lot of them I didn't understand because I was in middle school when I was playing these, or even maybe less. Nah, probably middle school, so sixth, seventh, eighth grade. And they were over my head. Like I couldn't figure them out. But Steve Jackson Games is still around. They started out with doing role-playing games. So they kind of like started doing science fiction role-playing games, again, based off what D&D was doing. And they are now doing... The awful I just, green things from outer space? That's the one. Yes. Oh, so good. <laughs> I would play that right now. It wouldn't be nearly as good as I want it to be, but I love that game. Sometimes um, and it was it's like best this- to just let it live in your memory. Don't revisit. Exactly. <laughs> yep. I'll get let Restoration Games remake it for me. Um, but a lot of these games went on to Kickstarter later on, and they just did Car Wars 6th Edition, which I went all in for, and I still find myself every other week just watching videos on this game. I cannot wait for it to come out. I've never played the original, but I am ready to invest in Car Wars now, and I'm I'm super looking forward to it. All right. And then the next one I have on here um, is Warhammer. So 1983. Now, miniature gaming was around. like It's existed for a really long time. Uh, but when D&D came out, they took medieval ga- wargaming, which was Chainmail, and added a fantasy element to it and made it into the first role-playing game. What Warhammer did was take that fantasy element and turn it back into a miniatures game. And even people who don't you know, aren't anywhere tangential to the hobby. If you say Warhammer, they will immediately get a vision of people playing in a dark room or in a basement someplace with a bunch of pushing a bunch of miniatures around on a big table. Um, <laughs> they invented, well, they didn't invent, but they kind of made uh, tabletop wargaming mainstream. And for that, and again, they are still around. Warhammer, the original Warhammer is not still around. It's Warhammer Age of Sigmar now. I think they went through six editions of the rules before they finally retired it and just started doing some spinoff stuff. Um, but Warhammer is like a big deal. And then I'm just going to say this one because there's so many reasons why this is terrible, but I have to say it. Talisman, <laughs> also released in 1983, was basically Fantasy Monopoly, a roll and move that lasted forever. But I played it so much in high school And one of my first, the first gaming party I had in Chicago, this was probably about 10 years ago, I bought everything I could for the new Talisman, and I invited a bunch of friends over, and we played a six or seven person game of Talisman that lasted for way, way, way too long. One person was super (laughs) serious. One person was super like, I don't even know what this is. I'm just going to roll dice. She won. The other guy lost. (laughs) 
<laughs> he, never seen anyone so mad ever before. And With that's Talisman. There is no skill to it. It's just roll the dice and see what happens. It's a terrible game. Never play it. Also, I think I own everything <laughs> for this game. <laughs> All right, Fletcher. Let's get into the modern era. <laughs> All right. So Catan, um, otherwise known as Settlers of Catan. That's how I remember it as. Published in 1995. Um, this is probably, at least in the U.S. or in the what? I guess, yeah, in the U.S., maybe in Canada, too. But, like, what brought Eurogaming to the United States? And I remember this being, like, a huge hit um, when I when when I was a kid and people talking about it. Um, not when I was a kid, but, like, maybe a little bit later, like, in high school. Um, yeah. Because it, it was very different from, like, most of the other games that you would, like, board games that you would play at that time. All the old standbys. Um, and it had just a bunch of like, ha- it had like the right amount of balance between luck and skill that made it like interesting and fun to play and, and lots of like replayability. I think one of the things it really had going for it is it, if you played Monopoly and then you played Catan, Catan and Monopoly have a lot of things in common. Yeah. So yeah. you have the negotiation. So you're you're getting things, you're doing that negotiation, which everyone plays Monopoly with a lot of negotiation in it. It had the rolling the dice to see what happens. Um, it wasn't roll and move, but it was roll and you know roll and resource. Um, but the thing that really set it apart was there was an end. It's like you're all going for ten points. First one to ten points wins. And where Monopoly didn't really have an end, it's first one who gets everything wins. So it. <sighs> There was just something about it that made you want to keep trying it over and over and over. And it had strategy. Like, there was meaningful decisions in it. It wasn't just rolling the dice and see what happens. Yeah. And um, like Terrence pointed out, it took an hour to play, not six. Yeah. yeah. So <laughs> you could play it and then immediately want to play it again. You could get, like, three games in at one game night. And that was, like, a huge deal. Because before, games I remember having before Catan were things like Risk. Monopoly. You know, if you wanted to play something that didn't take over four hours, you were playing like Clue. Clue was the most complicated game that you had around that didn't take forever. I didn't put Clue on this list, but I will say Clue, it was probably the best game of that era of like Milton Bradley Bradley Hasbro type of stuff. Uh, That wasn't a word game because I think Scrabble also could have been. Maybe. I don't like Scrabble. It's a very, very popular game. Just because you don't like word games doesn't mean they're not important. (laughs) Scrabble was far more popular than Clue, but Clue was so much better. Agree. (laughs) (laughs) I don't like word games that much either, especially not Scrabble. Scrabble's too easy to, like, game the system. That's true. I was going to put Scrabble. I was going to put Trivial Pursuit on here, but those are games I hate, so I just didn't because it's my list. So there. (laughs) This list is so populated by Chris, it's ridiculous, and I would just like to... Put that out here right now. <laughs> hey, I gave you guys 20 minutes heads up that the notes were done. Modify as you go. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Of. So the next one is 2005. Um, and that was the start of the Dice Tower podcast. So, and at the time, there was another gaming podcast. And I think maybe a couple other ones, because Tom has mentioned, like, he didn't think of the idea. He heard of, you know, got into this podcasting thing. He was hearing other people do it. And he's like, hey, I can do that. And he accidentally um, kind of made the top tens part of what the Dice Tower was. He's just like, I didn't know what to do for the first episode, so I just figured I'd do a top ten list. 
And that has carried through all the way through. But he's started doing reviews on Board Game Geek. Actually, Board Game Geek should be on this list as well. So we'll we'll put that right around this time as well. Um, <laughs> but he started doing reviews on Board Game Geek. And then he started doing a podcast and eventually, you know, started doing YouTube and so doing the videos. And he said the reason he did the videos is because they were easier to do than written reviews. He could just, you know, talk for 15 minutes and be done as opposed to trying to write a written review, which requires a lot of going back and making sure everything's clear. Um, but... Right now, the Dice Tower is, you know, I'm using the word premier um, place to find out about board games, but it really is like synonymous with board games and board games reviews. And if you don't listen to the Dice Tower or watch any of their stuff, um, you probably should. I, I don't watch all their stuff by far, but they have so many different things. And the week, the re- weekly roundup is probably the must watch of everything they do. Cause they kind of tell you all the stuff they reviewed and give you a quick reading rating. And it's like a 10 or 15 minute um, watch. And it really kind of keeps you in the know on board games. Uh, warning, you'll end up buying a lot of board games. If you do that though, board game geek but- is actually 20 years old. Now it was first published in 2000. Yep. Yeah. As I say, between Catan and the dice tower podcast, I probably right should have put between Catan and yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, granted, the website still has the same interface as it was originally published in, but um, you almost. Know, there's some they have, <laughs> almost they have made some minor improvements within the last maybe six months. <laughs> yeah. Yep. So yeah, Terrence has just realized that the year 2000 was 20 years ago. And yeah. Who'd have thought that the year 2020 would be the most chaotic year? I Ever. keep thinking the 70s was like 30 years ago. That's the one that's getting me. Yeah. Hey, me too. <laughs> I, I don't was know born why. born in the 70s. <laughs> All, All right. right. Speaking of 2020, forward, Kitty. What? I don't know what... Oh, pandemic. I get it now. <laughs> uh, this was first published in 2008, um, and pandemic really brought the co-op game to the forefront of the gaming hobby. So... This was the first co-op game that I was aware of that I played, and I know many, many people feel the same way, and led to a huge boom in the cooperative game market with its popularity. Yeah. It led to a lot of bad co-ops immediately after, though. There was... <laughs> yes. But people kept trying, and now well, it's when like... there's a flood of the market of a certain kind of game. There's going to be good ones, but there's going to be a lot of bad ones, too. Yeah. Um, but yeah, now co-op games, they almost are, I mean, I don't know, I'd have to do an informal poll, but I prefer co-op games over competitive games in many, many cases. When I'm playing with a larger group, I'd rather we're all playing together in an interesting co-op game than all competing against each other. And I heard someone, um, talking about co-op games. In a co-op game, the entire group is either happy or unhappy. So you'll, the entire group either wins or loses. <laughs> In a non-co-op game, only one person's happy and everyone else is unhappy. So the co-op game has a better chance to make everyone happy, where a competitive game, you're guaranteed that only one person's going to be happy. So, uh, but yeah, I never liked Pandemic. Um, we'll talk a little <laughs> bit later about the version I might have liked. Uh, spoiler alert. But yeah, Pandemic by itself was kind of eh to me. And when that was like the co-op game, I'm just like, all right, I'll, I'll find other things to do. But yeah, things have changed. Um, that same year that Pandemic made co-op games big, Dominion created a new genre. Um, and 
Oh, this was out of order. That's all right. We're going to do a flashback right after this one. Um, so Dominion <laughs> created the deck building. I don't know if it's a genre or a mechanic or a game type or whatever, but deck building really wasn't a thing until Dominion, with the exception of one little asterisk we'll talk about in a second, but it was a totally different kind of deck building. <laughs> and <laughs> I'm spoiling all kinds of things. But Dominion was... <sighs> It was a fascinating game. And when I first played this, I'm like, this is crazy. Like how, like, it it just changed everything. I'd never seen anything like it before. Um, and then there were tons and tons and tons of clones. And honestly, the first, the few clones that came after this um, are like the Ascension and um, Star Realms type of clones where you just have one common deck and then you have a common buy. I hate those games. I hate them. I hate them. I hate them. <laughs> They're so uninspired. They're so bad. Everything about them I hate, except for the fact the setup for them is so much faster than Dominion. So Dominion is great once everything's <laughs> set up, but to get it set up and to choose your cards is such a pain. So that's why Ascension and Star Hero, Star Realms and those types of games uh, really kind of took off. But I find them to be so lacking in strategy because it's really just, okay, here's what you have to, there's no long-term planning. Where with Dominion, you could really kind of like, this is what I want to do, and this is what I want to get done. Um, but that's, I digress. Although I do like Hero Realms because it's fantasy-based. That's the only reason I like it, though. I just like, I like the fantasy, and I like the art on that one. So Fletcher, take us, um, let's see, 15 years earlier than Oopsie this. Oopsie back in time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so before Dominion... <laughs> There was Magic the Gathering, otherwise just known as Magic, usually what people called it. Released in 1993. Um, I think this was the very first like trading card game, collectible trading card game. Yep. Um, I remember playing the crap out of this game when I had $5 to rub together. Um, <laughs> going to the store, I think the, I think the booster packs were about like five bucks a piece. Um, and I, had so much fun with this game. I loved the artwork. I loved like how complex the game could be, even though I was like literally in elementary school, like playing this game. And I remember like the elementary school having to like ban Magic the Gathering. Like, no, like, no, you can't even play this during <laughs> recess because kids would get really, really into it and bring their decks to school. Um, I was one of those kids and uh, I, I was begging my parents for money all the time. And I think. They might have been like five bucks back in the day. And my I don't think my parents really understood like what this game kind of was. It's like, okay, you buy this game that has cards, but then you want to buy more, more of these cards so you can like play this game more, but you already have these cards already. Like, what do you need more for? I don't think they like got that concept <laughs> that and and because it, it's like this slot machine concept when you when you buy a pack of cards, you want to see what, you know, the new stuff that you get. It's lottery for kids. Loot boxes it's for kids. Loot boxes for kids. Um. Oh my gosh, that is all that they make for kids now. Yeah. Blind bag everything. Um. My mom was the opposite. We did not get into magic because um that one quickly got very expensive to yeah. participate in. But we did a lot of Pokemon. I did some uh, Pokemon. The, that was a bit later though. That was a bit later. Uh, my brother is eight years younger than me and he was huge in the pokemon era but i would play with him so uh almost in a uh dice masters-esque way i would put way more effort and time into creating my decks and no one would play with me anymore when i started beating <laughs> them too much 
Um, but I never really moved beyond playing like my family and friends. But I remember it being a huge deal at school where schools, you weren't allowed to bring your Pokemon cards to school because they had such value to them. And these kids would make trades that they didn't understand. And then parents would get mad about it. It was a huge thing. Yep. Well, so this was Pokemon was five years after Magic. Um, between that time, there were about 200. And I don't think I'm exaggerating trading card games. I went to the Gen Con after the Magic the Gathering was released, and it was like every other booth was a new collectible card game, and how it was like the most amazing thing. And like Dominion, it's like you just you can't get past the first of a genre. Like Magic is not the best game. If you analyze the game on a game perspective, it's not fantastic. But it was still the first, so it got that foothold, and it'll... It'll always exist. Um, there was a little bit of a wavering about uh, kind of around the 2005-ish range when Hasbro bought Wizards of the Coast because Hasbro actually saved Magic the Gathering and for that matter, Dungeons and Dragons because Wizards of the Coast was kind they didn't know how to manage the release cycle and get this stuff out there in a way that could be profitable. So when Hasbro came in, they said, look, you have full creative control. But this is how you're going to release this. This is what the business model is. And that created the cycles that created like steady release schedules, uh, playtesting. Like there was a, a pipeline that was going on and it's still the most popular trading card game today. Um, along with Pokemon and Yu-Gi-Oh. Although Yu-Gi-Oh. <sighs> <yeah>. <laughs> we can't talk about it anymore. Put it we, in the vault. We can't Chris. talk about Yu-Gi-Oh. <laughs> <laughs> But when I for the first time I played Magic, so 1993 is when I went off to college and I came back and I went to my hobby store and that's where I got my Avalon Hill games. And um, I picked up this pack. I just picked up one booster pack and it had black borders on it. So it was a beta pack at the time. And I opened it up and I'm like, this doesn't even have rules in it. It says it's a game, but it doesn't even have rules. Like, what is this? <laughs> so I just set it aside and it wasn't until a year later when a friend of mine started playing and he was playing, I think in the revised. So the first, um, it's unlimited or revised. So anyway, the first white bordered one afterwards. And that's when we really, really got into it. And I mentioned last, well, I will mention in the future, man, this is foreshadowing, <laughs> um, but I've mentioned previously that I have a whole bunch of dual lands. Well, these are mint dual lands from that time period. And they are worth a significant amount of money, as is anything from that time period. And it kills me because even at the time, we knew, we looked back and the first expansion that came out was um, Antiquities. And we're like, if we had just bought one box of Antiquities, like we could, we, we would have hundreds of dollars right now, you know, and the box of Antiquities would be like $80 or something. Um, it was, it, it, we, there was something there and we knew it. And honestly, I should have just bought everything I could have, and then I'd be rich right now. But I didn't, because I was in freshman in college, and who can afford to buy magic at that point? So, um, now we're going to fast forward back to 2008. Um, and I think this is where this put in here. Because 2008 was when Fantasy Flight created a new type of collectible game um, called the Living Card Game. And the Living Card Game was to combat all of these collectible card games. Because the biggest problem with collectible card games were that it was that slot machine thing. You know, pay to win. Spend the money, open the packs, try to get great cards. If you got lucky, great. If you didn't, well, go spend more money. Or you're repenting, spending a bunch of money on the <laughs> aftermarket. Um, what Fantasy Flight said was, hey, we're going to give you a pack of stuff. And what you're going to get is everything. 
It's just going to be one thing. You get it all, all, all up front. Um, and the first games that this came out was with the Game of Thrones card game, first edition, and Call of Cthulhu. Uh, a couple years later would have been Netrunner, uh, which rest in peace. That was a falling out between Fantasy Flight and uh, Wizard of the Coast, which is why we don't see Netrunner anymore. Um, <laughs> and it changed things quite a bit. But what we've realized now is that model works great if you get in at the ground floor. But if you get in like four years later, you have four <laughs> years worth of cards that you need to purchase. And because there's so few cards, um, because just the way they're released, they're released in, in kind of like small chunks, you have to really kind of invest in everything. So you want to retroactively get in one of these games, you're spending a ton of money to do that. I don't remember what episode it's in, but there's one where I went through and added up a cart of if I wanted to get into, I think it was the Lord of the Rings living card game. It was either that or Arkham Horror. Yeah. Um, and it was thousands of dollars. Yeah. And and like I said, when you're doing a, you know $12 a month, not a big deal. When you're doing that for five to 10 years worth, it's a big deal. Yeah, it was Lord of the Rings because Lord of the Rings up. is 10 years old now. Well, probably eleven or twelve, but yeah. Um, you know, Kitty, this was I'm I marked this, but I'm gonna make you talk about this next one. Okay. Um I didn't do any research on this one because Chris just <laughs> gave it to me. So Alien Frontiers <laughs> came out in twenty ten and apparently it um was the first it put Kickstarter and the ability to make games on the platform on the radar of the hobby. <laughs> um Nope, read the next two words. Chris really changing everything. There we go. Kickstarter changing everything. That's all I just wanted to get you to say. (laughs) And I agree that Kickstarter is a huge part of our hobby now. And it does really great things. But also some companies use it to their advantage. And we can't talk about that. (laughs) I could have not put Alien Frontiers on here. I could have just put... um, Kickstarter and would have been fine. Actually, from 2010 on, there is a video that Tom and Rado did about the most influential games in the last decade. So several of these games were pulled from that list, um, if not all of them. Nah, several of them. Nah, most of them. Um, but anyway, <laughs> Kickstarter, though, like I remember Alien Frontiers as a thing. I was, I was doing um, Adventures League at a game store. And I saw it there and someone's mentioned it's like, oh yeah, that's you know, that's a new game that came out and the designers like self-published it and they put it out there and it's super popular and it's selling out everywhere. And at the time, the idea that someone self-published something was just weird. Like you would never do something like that. And so I picked up a copy and I'm like, wow, this is really good. Like I would it just was unlike any other game out there. And I did not realize and wouldn't realize probably until four or five years later that this had anything to do with something called Kickstarter. But in retrospect, this was the game that started that phenomenon where this game was super popular, really like people like went after it and the secondary market was huge on this. Um, and I heard that it was being like they're making another copy or another run and they were raising money for it and stuff. But again, I never put it together with Kickstarter. So, and I just backed their last campaign. This it's actually had like six Kickstarter campaigns, but um, <laughs> their last one was like the definitive expansion edition or something along those lines. Um, and if you haven't played Alien Frontiers, you should. It is a really, really fun game. It's a dice rolling worker placement game. 
You know, something we didn't talk about when we were talking about Settlers of Catan is expansions. That's the first game I ever saw with expansions. And there were so many of them, and they were such, I don't know, they seemed big at the time, but they're probably not that big. I'm thinking about it now. But it, it was an interesting thing. Yeah, that actually, game. no, that's that's not a bad point. Like, I don't, Settlers definitely had expansions, because at that point, it was so popular in order to make money on it, because people already bought it, is you have to sell expansions. I can't think of a significant game before that that had expansions where people would go out and like, oh, you have to play it with this expansion. Even things like Axis and Allies and the war games and stuff, it was either you bought units, which was more along the living card game, the living game model, or yeah, I don't know that expansions were that big a deal before then. I mean, the only thing I could think of that would be like kind of expansion-y would be the books for D&D. Where you could have like the yeah. monster yeah, it, manual kind of a thing. But yep. it's not really the same, but it's kind of the same. Yeah. Well, it still amazes me the people who are huge into board games that have never played a role playing game, or those that are huge into role playing games and don't like board games. Like to me, they're they're so closely related, but I also understand that separation. Kitty's making a, a face. Um <laughs> I have to narrate your face. (laughs) (laughs) It's an intrigued, uh, good point face, but I'm just, uh, you know. Um, All right. So after Alien Frontiers, I threw X-Wing on here again because Tom mentioned it in this video, which he does make a pretty good point. So Warhammer was huge for miniature gaming. X-Wing was huge in bringing miniature gaming to the mainstream. Uh, If you like Star Wars and if you've never played a tabletop game before, you could buy the X-Wing starter set and be playing a miniature game in a matter of, you know, half hour or so and being like, I am flying ships around in space. And it was like fun and exciting. And it, it took away the, like the tape measure and added like a measuring thing and with turning radiuses. And there was a lot in that starter box, but if you've never played X-Wing, it is worth picking up the starter box to play it just to see how streamlined a miniatures game can be and you don't have to paint anything everything comes pre-painted everything comes looking amazing you could just buy the game and put the figures on a shelf and that would be great um and i realized so someone mentioned in the in the chat that i have two angles right now of my camera and apparently one (laughs) angle you just see my face so you can't see me talk with my hands but the other one's kind of lower and i'm like waving my hands all over the place and it's distracting me i'm literally distracting myself with my own hands This is why you should join the live audience, because then you can be distracted, too. (laughs) So, yeah, X-Wing. I'll just say painted miniatures, really cool ships, nice streamlined game system, X-Wing 2012. Three years later? Time Stories. So, this was the um, game that was the first kind of one-and-done scenario game, where you bought the game, and then you had to buy scenarios in separate boxes to run through the game. And this is one of my favorite games still, and I have, like, all the scenarios I stole from Chris that I need to play. Um, But Spencer is not as big a fan of this game as I am, so it's hard (laughs) to get him to play with me. (laughs) Yeah, when this came out, it was a like everyone loved the gameplay, but people were like, wait a minute, I have to spend how much money to play once? And granted, you yeah. usually spent maybe two to three hours playing it, but it was still once. Yeah. It but I, I like the way that it plays multiple times. So you feel like you get a lot of use out of the one scenario. And, you know, it's 
always the return on investment kind of thing is like, how much time and enjoyment do you actually get out of that one box versus if you buy a big game and you still only play that once for, you know, two, three hours, there's so much of that. Yeah. Well, and Taz mentions that there were like mystery games in a box and stuff like one time plays. Um, But I think Time Stories really had a quality to it that allowed people to buy it enjoy it and not regret it that opened up because time stories is really just a fancy escape room and i think all of the escape room stuff came that came after this was based on two reasons why they could exist one escape rooms actual physical escape rooms were becoming bigger and bigger and two time stories showed that hey it's okay to spend money on a game that you're only going to play once and now escape rooms are their own complete genre of usually one-time play um, actually, not even usually. There's a few that are one-time play, but a lot of them are now resettable um, scenarios. But you still can only play them once, and then you can pass them on to someone else to play them. Yeah, because I think um, Sherlock Holmes Consulting Detective was a big one that came before this. But it does not have the same kind of escape roomy feel. And I think that it was not as widely popular because of its lack of replayability. Yeah. I mean, it, it, Time Stories was a big deal. A lot of people were really, really... Um, like. I'm never going to buy this. You can only play it once. It's just a t- huge waste of money type of thing. Uh, if it had not been as critically acclaimed as it was, it would have never succeeded. So someone mentioned in the chat, Legacy Games. So Kitty. Pandemic Legacy is our next <laughs> game on the list. Also came out in 2015. Um, yeah. And this really popularized the Legacy format. Um, there was Risk Legacy before Pandemic Legacy, but it did not catch on as much as Pandemic Legacy did. And I think because of the popularity of Pandemic, but also I just really liked the gameplay more. And I think it really resonated with a lot of people that way, that this was a really good story that they created within a popular game that everyone was familiar enough with that wasn't competitive. I think the cooperative nature of Pandemic really lent itself well to the legacy style of game. Yeah. And the reason I didn't put, because I was going to put Risk Legacy on this list, but when Risk Legacy came out, it was a novelty at best. It wasn't a, forgive the pun, game changer. Pandemic (laughs) Legacy was. Pandemic Legacy is, this is what you can do with a legacy game. And it did change everything. And now most like we we've had multiple debates of whatever or not it's a campaign game or a legacy game. What's a legacy game? What's a campaign game? <laughs> but this continuing story game came from this type of concept. This like and it existed a little bit before this, but after we saw what can happen when you have a continuing storyline in a game, it became huge. And we'll see that in two more entries. But first, Fletcher, <laughs> let's talk about the next one. Mansions of Madness Second Edition. So this is one of the games that showed that you could improve upon an existing game, meaning like the first edition of this game, um, by using an app and having the app essentially just be the the GM for the game. Um, I've played this game a few times. Um, it's pretty interesting. It's actually not one of my favorite games. I find it too slow. Um <laughs> But I don't know, Chris, what do you you think about it? Yeah. No, I I agree. I think I have 
most of the Mansions of Madness stuff. Um, but if I have to choose between Mansions of Madness of, or Arkham Horror the Card Game, I'm going to choose Arkham Horror the Card Game. And if I'm looking for something short, right now I'll choose Cthulhu Death May Die because it gives me that same feeling that Mansions of Madness does, but in a much smaller um, footprint. But there's no mistaking that if you look at Mansions of Madness Second Edition and versus First Edition, because First Edition had one player who acted as the the GM essentially. There's probably a word for it. I don't think it's the keeper, but acted as the pre- the the bad guys. Um, when you take that out and everyone's working against the app, it becomes this pure co-op where you can all experience the game together, and it becomes a story game at that point versus a competitive game. And this is one of the few instances where you can actually measure game without app, game with app, which one's better. Some people still like first edition more. The vast majority of the people like the second edition more. Just because there's an app doesn't mean it's a bad, like, you know, some people are purists. I don't want apps next to my board games. Um, I actually, one great argument about this, though, is if the phone is being used as the GM for the board game, it's not being used for Candy Crush. So it actually is a... We- better way to focus people on the board game (laughs) you (laughs) and your dislike for candy crush (laughs) i'm just saying it's the devil uh but sometimes you're boring term story games (laughs) uh one that i do think you enjoy fletcher gloomhaven uh released in 2017 um so this was a huge this was a huge... Three years now. Huh? Mm-hmm. What, what, was, what was it? Sorry. <laughs> we were already doing the podcast when Gloomhaven came out. It doesn't feel like it was that long ago. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, there was a lot of pent-up demand and like anticipation for this game. I remember lots of people going nuts for this game. Um, the build-up for this game was amazing and incredible. Um, I really like this game, except for like a few fiddly game mechanics. Um I think some of the mass appeal of this game is that it's almost like D&D without a DM. So kind of, again, like Masters of Madness 2nd Edition, that the game has a really interesting narrative story that you don't have to, you know, jump into the GM GM or DM shoes to try to, like, tell the story or figure out what to do. Um, And... Basically, with some rules and mechanics, like you just move the enemies yourself with branching story paths. Yep. Terrence asked if this was my first true FOMO game, and no, because I accidentally bought two of them. Um, but I yes. didn't buy them off Kickstarter. This at was this our, point. S- our double unboxing. Is that video still up on YouTube? Oh, it's still there. Yeah. <laughs> we had done a full unboxing, Kitty and I, and forgot to turn the camera on. I forgot to turn the camera on. No, you and did then- it by yourself. Yeah. I wasn't there for the first one. Oh, right. Yeah. And then like three days later, I got the second copy that I had ordered. And I'm like, oh, okay, we can do this again. And then I brought Kitty in and we did the, the actual unboxing. <laughs> um, yeah. But yeah, I mean, the thing with Gloomhaven is it's a Euro game at heart. So it's card management. It's not it's not dice rolling. There is a deck that you draw from from the randomness, but you can adjust the randomness in that deck. And everything about it feels like solving a puzzle versus, you know, chucking dice. And I will say, if you've never played Gloomhaven, uh, Jaws of the Lion, which is the mass market version of Gloomhaven, it will, will be out in the next few weeks. Um, and it is a entry level Gloomhaven. So it's in all ways, it's Gloomhaven. It's just instead of setting up map tiles and stuff like that, it's a spiral bound book. You just open it up and the map is set up and 
it's streamlined to be able to be sold in Target. So if you see Jaws of the Lion, pick it up. It's fully compatible with Gloomhaven. And like I said, if you've never played it, because it's just too intimidating, as it should be, it's 26 pounds of game. Um, Jaws of the Lion is a nice, easy entry into that. I think some of the um, kind of like mystique of Gloomhaven 2 was like there's a, a many of the characters are secret. So you have like these six starting characters and then you don't even really get to even know what the other characters are um, until you complete like certain quests to unlock these characters. So there's a lot of like hidden kind of like, I don't know, in, um, I don't know fun things to find out. Legacy aspects, might, Legacy, some might say. Yeah, exactly. Legacy <laughs> yeah. aspects. Yeah. And, and that's the thing. Pandemic Legacy in 2015, Gloomhaven in 2017. Gloomhaven is far more ambitious for sure. But you know for a fact that so much of the game elements of how things unravel and the hidden elements and the story cards came directly from Pandemic Legacy. And, I mean, Pandemic Legacy was number one on Board Game Geek for the longest time. Gloomhaven came out and then, you know, took it over. Um, But Gloomhaven owes Pandemic Legacy for essentially the inspiration. Um, And we talked to Isaac, and I... I didn't ever ask him like how much he was inspired by Pandemic Legacy. Every once in a while, it'll happen. It's like, oh, I, I've never even played that game. Um, that happens sometimes. But I cannot imagine that if Pandemic Legacy hadn't been as popular as it was, Gloomhaven, I do not think, would be the hit that it was. Because it opened the door for these types of long story-based games to exist. The opposite of long story-based games. I'm surprised you let me talk about this one. So I figured I was going to add to so many of these that I should let you guys talk about the ones that you've actually played. <laughs> so Keyforge um, came out in 2018. Um, I think we all picked up our first decks at that Gamehole Con that year. Mm-hmm. Um, this is a unique deck game. So you do not build your decks. They are created and you open and discover them in the moment. And it is supposed to make it so that you can join the game at any time without feeling like you have to invest in lots and lots of cards the way you do with magic or other collectible card games. You have to buy decks instead. Um, my personal opinion is that you have to spend almost as much money buying decks as you do buying cards themselves. It just, you know, switches around the way that pay to play mechanic works a little bit, but you, it is a lot easier to join in without having to go through a huge backlog of, well, I need these cards or I'm not competitive. And it also, um, I think has done a really good job of eliminating the feel of you play the same deck over and over again. There are, there's much more variation deck to deck and player to player. Um, you will see some of the same cards over and over again, but uh, less so than with Magic or Pokemon or Yu-Gi-Oh. You'll see much more variation in the smaller cards. I'd say like there's always a few big cards you'll see. Um, a lot of combos happen in decks. So, you know, you'll have certain combo decks, but mostly you're going to see a lot more variation deck to deck than you do in other tournament play card games. Yeah. For me, the fact that you can't possibly collect everything because there's nothing to collect, yeah, it's can't. infinity, um, breaks that need for me to have everything. 
but it still has yeah. the booster pack opening effect. It still has that slot machine effect where I still want to buy so many decks. It's ridiculous. Too many um, decks. Yeah. But the, <laughs> the, the thing is, the game is also very, very good as well. If you like dueling card games, um, actually playing them, not building decks, and there is a distinct difference between you know those yes. two things. Keyforge is one of those games where you can just be out of for months at a time and then buy a deck and be right back into it. And it the unique mechanic is it's really I can't wait to see where this goes. I get a little bit frustrated with the adding of different like mechanics and rules with each set so far. I don't know if that's going to slow down or not um because it does feel like if you miss a couple sets, you have a lot more rules to learn and catch up on than you do if you, you know, are keeping up with it. It yeah. was really nice at the beginning when everyone knew all of the same mechanics, you know, and there were only so many, but now if I come back into the game cuz I've been out for like six months now because pregnancy is hard. <laughs> That's all right. And coming back. Everything was pushed back due to <laughs> pandemic. So you haven't missed a thing. I missed one set, basically. I didn't play a lot of Worlds Collide. I think I have like two decks that you bought yeah. me and I played them that one time and you beat me so badly. I didn't like it anymore. <laughs> <laughs> well, the thing, and, and that's where you have to walk, walk a fine line as a publisher because you got to add the new stuff for your diehard players, but you can't make anything you can't just keep adding rules for your casual yeah. players so what they do is any new set may introduce new rules but they don't carry over rules from the previous set automatically so there are some stuff that are, are in that second third fourth whatever set that were introduced earlier but they're considered in those instructions for that new set they will be their own rules in there so you know that's just yeah there's definitely a fine line to walk there right yeah, it's hard keeping it interesting, but also not making it inaccessible. Yep. Um, all right. So before we do the last one on our list, I did want to jump back. Um, so Michael um, asked, what about roll and rights? And that is a good, good question. What about roll and rights? And then Taz mentioned Yahtzee, um, which said, oh, great. I get to go on my on my soapbox. Um, <laughs> Yahtzee, <laughs> Yahtzee is not a roll and write. So I'm just going to put it out there. You roll dice oh, and then you write down it? stuff. You do that. You do that. But modern roll and writes don't work that way. Modern roll and writes are a shared pool. So in my mind, although Yahtzee was technically, yes, the first roll and write, they've evolved beyond Yahtzee even qualifying for the genre that it created. Again, that's just my personal opinion. But roll and writes in general, I think the, the modern genre, um, I don't know. I don't even know which one. Ganshan Clever is the first one that pops to mind as like this crazy, huge, popular one. Um, I know Welcome Two is a oh, is a huge and Welcome popular Two one. Is a huge one. Cartographer, I, I, I think, one just first, won maybe. or was nominated for the Spiel des Jahres or something. Um, I mean, there's no doubting that the genre is huge right now. I don't know which one. What, like the watershed moment was. <laughs> yeah, that's. If anyone knows, let me know. But. Um, yeah, roll and rights in general, I think we can put on this list someplace. I just don't know exactly where that is. And some people have predicted that roll and rights are a fad. They're going to go away. Um, I think that roll and rights are amazing for large groups. I'd much rather play a roll and write as a party game than a party game as a party game. Um, I did not put things like apples to apples or uh, cards against humanity because I find those games mind numbing. Um, but they are technically the milestones of gaming. 
I like that Disney has a nice vault that things come out of everywhere once in a while. It's like, oh, delightful. Whereas we have a vault that's like full of bad. We have a bad vault. <laughs> <laughs> we don't talk about this anymore. I do acknowledge. Yeah. I mean, I do acknowledge <laughs> those things. It's just on a list of things that are milestones for my gaming world. They don't <laughs> even make a little dent. Um, but I think this last one is a good one to end as a capper with. Um, and Kitty, this is your game, so. It's Wingspan. This is 2019. Um, and I really think this was a, a very strong moment for women in gaming. Um, it has a female designer. All of the art was done by women. And it really spoke to, um, gamers of all kinds, not just women gamers. I think it really, um, was, increased in popularity by its lack of availability too it was so (laughs) huge and everyone loved it so much and there was such a shortage of it um but it's really just such a beautiful game and such an interesting theme in the world of board games because you don't see anything like it and um i blame it for my mom's new bird watching obsession she has now a bird watching journal and has bought three new bird feeders this summer. I bought Social a isolation has done weird things for my mother. She got a hummingbird feeder. She got an Oriole feeder and she replaced her regular bird feeder because the squirrels had destroyed it. So, yeah. And honestly, this was completely accidental that I started and ended this list with female designers. Um, I'm pretty sure most of the <laughs> middle of it is all white dudes, but um <laughs> I mean, what Wingspan really did is said, hey, every theme doesn't have to be space or fantasy. And that's why Wingspan was so hard to get early on, because distributors looked at this and said, it's not space or fantasy, I'll take 10 copies. And it was so underbought at the distributor level that when it came out to retail, distributors just like, oops, we messed up. It wasn't Stronghold that messed it up. It was the distributors. Stronghold took the blame for it. Um, and they did everything they could to get it out there as fast as they could. Everything, um, yeah. But they really bent ult- her backwards. <laughs> yeah. But when you look at this game, the quality, the components, everything about this game was just, it, it just hit something that no one else, that no one realized it would. Um, you know, it had articles in all kinds of non-gaming magazines about it, just because of a, because of the theme, because of the designer, because of the gameplay. Like it was a mainstream game for, that hobbyists loved. That wasn't really a mainstream game, but really the most casual person could play this and kind of figure out what was going on within one play. And everything about this game just made it deserving of all the awards at one last year. Um, it's yeah, it's it's hard to under state how important this game is especially in our modern designer um, field so let's see um sorry stonemeyer games not stronghold games stonemeyer games for wingspan stronghold games has done nothing that's important uh including terraforming mars <laughs> i was gonna say there's a noticeable lack of terraforming mars on this list chris <laughs> so so let's t- terraforming mars is one of those games that it it was popular for sure and like Everyone loves it, and they're doing their big box 3D terrain expansion um, in the next week or so on Kickstarter. So if you like Terraformer, do that. But I don't think it actually did anything for the industry. It was just a very popular game. I um, actually agree. Yeah, yeah. I, <laughs> I mean, yeah, it can be popular like, and Stone fun, and not, or Stronghold and not, like, be groundbreaking in any way. 
Yeah. Stronghold did nothing to make the game quality. Like, the components were as cheap as components could be. Like, I don't think anyone expected it to be as popular as it was. And that's why... (laughs) If you have all the expansions and you get all of the upgraded components stuff, it's a very, very nice game at that point. The card quality is still eh, but throw it in sleeves because if you're playing it a lot, you should anyway. But um, I don't know that Terraforming Mars was a industry game changer. It was just a super popular game. Um, and I'm going to back the next Kickstarter. I'm going to have everything for this. I'm going to play it until I like it. <laughs> it's just not something that changed the industry. It changed Stronghold. Stronghold, like, it's their number one selling game. And, you know, it allowed Steven to go, you know, basically quit his day job, become a full-time publisher. And that's great. Um, but I don't <laughs> know. It would be hard to list, argue it as a landmark game. We're talking an awful lot game. about it. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, this episode was way longer and way more fun than I expected. Um, I seriously thought, like, after the first four games, I was like, oh, my gosh, we're going to have to answer, like, two questions. We're going to run it. Like, we don't have enough to talk about. And then here we are. <laughs> yeah. We don't have time the for a question, one. Chris. Move on. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Um, all right. Well, this that is our gaming milestones episode <laughs> next week is a huge milestone for us we're hitting 200 episodes uh it's it feels like it went by in a flash but we have had a ton of fun in the last 200 episodes just doing what we get to do is just kind of talk about games over and over and over um but join us thursday so that's two days from when you're listening to this if you're listening to it when it drops Thursday, 8.30 Central, uh, go to tabletopgametalk.com slash live and join us for our 200th episode. We're going to be talking about our top 10 twiggle, wiggle, wiggle, fat games. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, and really, we're only going to be talking about the top five. We're going to honorable mention the other five because we just don't have enough time to talk about 30 games in, in depth. Uh, so, but meet us there. It's going to be great. And we're going to have a ton and ton of fun. And we don't have any time to really fill anything else here. So we're just going to say you can follow us on Tabletop Game Talk Podcast, Facebook, Twitter, Fletcher, Josh, I'm Game Master Chris, Patreon, uh, YouTube, leave us a review, iTunes or something. Wow. Tabletop Game Talk is a proud member of the Dice Tower Network. Thanks for listening. And remember, we love your feedback. So email us with comments or questions about today's topic at feedback at tabletopgametalk.com. And now someone is going to read the credits that I'm going to edit in magically. Kia ora from New Zealand. Much aroha to the following. Christopher Comstock, Sam Lassett-Brown, David Rank, Charles Pearson, Jesse Wheeler, Aaron Moore, Matthew Droke, Jimothy, Paul Raymer, Agnes Toth, Nicholas Lotz, Weatherman Keefe, Sahara Wentworth, Ron Nelson, Joe Rackstad, John Lewis, Christopher Letko, Leanne Verhulst, Stephen Judd, Don Gilstrap, Jesse Wokwiak, Glenn Cotter, Joe Hoover, Mike Smith, Eric Sealander, Sean Peck, Baz Flintham, Adrian Dong, Eric Huffman, Anne Reynolds, Phil Schwartzel, Cindy Lum, Miles Clark, Michael Yanikowski, Jason Rodney, David Sellers, Nick Quickstra, David Redkey, Jeremy Fisher, Jason Marks, Christopher Dong, Justin Willard, Jennifer Engelbrecht, Caleb O'Brien, Jerry Huang, Benjamin Heimovitz, Rudy Lou, C. Marie, Sean P. Kelly, Brian Ardle, Stephen Seitz, Terence Miltner, Jason Strong, Adam Harrison, and The Gift of Games. Until next week, keep playing games and having fun. Thank you.
I think that was probably the worst outro I've ever done. You think? <laughs> yep. But people have heard I agree. it. They know it all before. <laughs> it's all in the show notes if they want to refer to it. If this is your first episode and you're still listening, go listen to the outro of another episode. We usually say normal things. <laughs> <laughs>